Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Over the past week, we've seen the closure of a consultation process looking at the establishment of a voice to parliament for the Indigenous population in Australia. Now, this comes with a range of issues that have been controversial for some parts of uh, the Australian community. And I'm joined today by Professor Megan Davis from the University of New South Wales, who's going to take us through some of the aspects of this and why it's important and where this process needs to head in the next little while. Uh, Megan, thank you for joining me. Hi, Tom. Um, thanks for having me. Oh, that, that, that's absolutely uh, an absolute pleasure. Now, but before we begin looking at the issue of, uh, of substance here, which is the whole process of um, looking at the Uluru Statement of the Heart and the consultation that's taken place, and suggestions about recognition of the constitution. Uh, some people may not know who you are and what you do and, and where you've come from. What would your background look look like to, to someone if you summarised it on the back of an envelope? Um, well, I'm a public law and constitutional lawyer who um, uh, um, is based at the University of New South Wales. Um, I am also a provost chancellor here at UNSW. Um, and I'm also an Aboriginal woman, um, a cobble cobble woman from Southeast Queensland. Um, and so for most of my life, I've worked on um, the law and Aboriginal people. I think that sums it up probably. Yeah, now where it, this process that the government's put in place to develop a voice to parliament um, began or, or uh, in, in its most recent incarnation um, uh, began with the Uluru Statement. Can you explain to the audience why the Uluru Statement is such a pivotal statement for the Indigenous population? Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I'm the best way of talking about the Uluru Statement um, is, is to say two things, I think. Um, one is it is the culmination of, you know, a decade-long piece of work conducted by Australians and non-Indigenous Australians um, on the pursuit of constitutional recognition of First Nations people. And what I mean by that is the Commonwealth government, the federal government has over the past 11 years had ongoing processes and mechanisms aimed at providing some form of recognition in Australia's constitution. And why, why, why is that sought? I mean, it's, it's sought because it's a very common thing for Western liberal democracies to do. It's thought that if you recognise um, Aboriginal populations within the framework of the constitution, um, that it addresses, certainly doesn't resolve, but it addresses some of the issues that have existed since first contact around the dislocation of First Nations peoples from 
you know, their own country. So Australia is one of many countries who have attempted this. Um, and we're now in our 11th year of this. Um, and, and we've had something like five or six processes where Indigenous and non-Indigenous people have turned their minds to this issue. And I think the Uluru Statement was the line in the sand, really. It was the, the actual time in which after there were many processes to understand what, what does recognition actually look like um, it was the first time anyone had actually gone out to Aboriginal communities and asked them what it looks like. Um, and the response was voice treaty truth is how it's colloquially known. But the primary thing offer on the table from the Australian people is constitutional recognition. What does that look like? It looks like a voice to parliament enshrined in the constitution. What does that mean? It means something like, what is in a number of constitutions around the world, and that is like, something like a duty to consult, meaning that when the Commonwealth makes laws and policies about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they must, they're compelled by the force of law to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at the table. So the whole point of the reform is to improve the quality of laws and policies that are made about First Nations peoples because currently, and for the past 10, 15 years post-ASIC, there aren't many Aboriginal people at the table, if any. It's mostly non-Indigenous bureaucrats. And, it's, and that's precisely why we continue to have so many problems when it comes to education and housing um, and justice um, and health, because we're just not included in those conversations. So, so that's the agenda. Now, if, if I can take a brief uh, moment to segue into something, it, laws in this country are made by, um, obviously, by Parliament, and there's an obligation. It was inserted into the legislative process related to sort of regulatory, assessing regulatory impact. Uh, and it would seem to me reflecting on the sort of re regulatory impact analysis and other things that the parliament requires bureaucrats to do, that this is the, the consultation with the Indigenous community on laws that impact specifically on them uh, in, an, in an adverse fashion, um, is simply common sense. Why are we not there? So it's a, it's a really good question because, the, you know, since Uluru happened and people become to understand what voice means and, and we can see from the polling and there's many polls from Crosby Texter to Essential to the Australian Constitutional Values to, you know, there's so many polls, ABC polls show that um, somewhere between 60 and 70% of Australians support this reform and that's before there's any major national educated educative campaign and there's no it's not it doesn't it hasn't yet reached reached national um traction um but to have that amount of support now is very good and it's very high um and certainly the experts on polling tell us enough to withstand a no vote um so if we've just put polling to one side, because I think people lost a bit of confidence in that at the last election, 
what we're hearing from focus groups is Australians support it because they see it intuitively. Australians see it as quite fair, um, meaning why wouldn't you have blackfellas at the table when you're designing laws and policies about them? Like it makes sense to them. And so, I, I mean, my answer to you is I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. We have got all our ducks in a row. You know, we've got union support, education sector support. We've got corporate Australia support. We've got law firm support. We've got the AMA. We've got the Law Council of Australia. Uh, we've got conservative high court former chief judges and, you know, more progressive chief judges and ex-chief judges. We've got, we've got all of our ducks in a row and still we're not there. I know this is a kind of a challenging question because the process um, has just concluded in terms of submissions, but and we have all sorts of statutory structures that can be used for consultation processes. Um, we seem as a, as a country quite good at setting up statutory authorities. Um, and I can't see why we're not yet where we need to be with a particular kind of a, a, a structure for, for a voice to parliament. What in your mind would um, uh, the voice to parliament look like, given that you've reflected on this a fair bit over the past, uh, past decade, if not longer? So it's a good question. I think you're right. We are very good at setting up particular regulatory kind of frameworks and commissions that are aimed at eliciting a lot of information. Um, and um, one of the most effective, I think, statutory commissions that we ever set up on Aboriginal issues is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. I think it is impugned by a lot of um, unscrutinised kind of anecdotes and mythology about it. It is true that the leadership failed ATSIC in its kind of last years, but it did a lot of excellent, excellent work across the Federation in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander work. So the voice, what does it look like? It's a really, it's an excellent question actually, because I think the last iteration of the voice post ATSIC was the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. It was designed and led by Tom Calmer, who's designing and leading this process. But one of the downsides of that, um, I think, is, is um, well, at least of that model was it was a corporation. It sat outside the, you know, machinery of government. The idea was if you build a National Farmers Federation, but for Aboriginal issues, then it'll be influential. But, you know, the Congress soon discovered that, um, you know, we're not the National Farmers Federation. We don't have leverage. We don't have the land base. We don't have... Um, the, the, the money to influence in, this, in quite the same way. And the Congress was always reliant on government money. Um, so that failed miserably. Um, and the process that they undertook to create the Congress, um, you know, didn't reach the threshold of appropriate kind of best practice when it comes to designing institutions for Aboriginal people. So it just failed. Nobody had any faith in it. It failed. So what does the First Nations voice look like? Well, I, I'm going to say the following because that is what the people, men and women of the constitutional dialogue said they wanted in a voice. First of all, it is First Nations based. That means 
the representatives in Canberra represent their nation and it's not a Western ballot box type structure where you have elections and one representative represents, you know, an entire half a state or territory, for example. So does that mean you need 200 spots, right, in an assembly in terms of a First Nations? We've got well over 200 First Nations. Well, the answer is no, because in different particular regions, regions can um, get together with multiple nations and determine who would represent that particular area. I think the First Nations basis of it was to imbue in the Australian constitution a connection between our ancient polities who existed 60, 70,000 years ago, who still exist today. The idea is that representative democracy has not served us well because those representatives don't understand the communities that, they rep that they're representing or they come from. And so that was a really key issue for MOB when they were thinking about how do you take this opportunity of constitutional recognition to design a voice that we think will deliver a difference on the ground. The second thing that was raised in the dialogues, so that's the first thing. I mean, I should say there, Tom, we know in New South Wales, for example, New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council does run traditional Western ballot box elections. And so New South Wales mob were quite happy to have Australian Electoral Commission run elections. Um, but that, that, and that's great. And self-determination tells us it's up to the mob to decide what the mechanism of selection looks like. But in other parts of the country, there are groups where, you know, if I think about the Yolngu mob up near Yurikala, the Gumach clan will know exactly who represents them, Galaroi Pingu. So there are other areas um, where people will know exactly who the cultural authority is that would represent them in Canberra. And so that kind of First Nations kind of idea reflects the nuances of how each and every nation lives in a different way across the continent. The second thing that was really important for Aboriginal communities, and I think this probably goes to the heart actually, we don't reflect on this much really in terms of public policy, but the second thing was two-way accountability, meaning communities were absolutely adamant that their representatives in Canberra had to report back to them what was going on. There seemed to be post-ATSIC, probably kind of 15 years on, a real um, concern that those people who go to Canberra who purport to represent Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people never report back to them what's said in their name. Um, and so there was this, there was a very strong uh, sentiment for a recall mechanism. So that if an Aboriginal representative who was on The Voice, who wasn't coming home to country and informing the community on what was going on, that you could um, have a mechanism by which, you know, with recall mechanisms, you choose what the threshold is of a, of a, of a petition, so maybe 5,000 signatures or 500 in some communities. And when the petition reaches that threshold, there's a, there's a new election and they elect a new person or, or that person's recalled and someone else is put in their place. The idea is, and this has been lost post Uluru, that communities were really interested in that accountability of their representatives to them. 
And then the other two-way accountability, of course, is the Parliament's accountability to Aboriginal communities. Um, so, so that was a really interesting outcome of the dialogue. So you're starting to get a picture, I think, of the dialogues, of, of, of the voices being First Nation driven, so deeply, deeply imbued with cultural authority, so that when people talk, they are talking from um, their traditional owners, um, the people who live in that community, and the government knows that you're actually getting the kind of advice that is coming directly from community. So they're just two kind of, I think, components of the voice that people had identified. Um, they'd spoken a lot about what roles current institutions, as you've referred to, like the Productivity Commission or the Australian National Audit Office, you know, the kinds of roles that they could play in this voice to enhance its work. Um, and then you've got the Coalition of Peaks, for example, who lead the Closing the Gap work. You know, they would be the expert advice to the voice. So, so there was a lot of thinking about how you use the current machinery of government to enhance our work in very much the same way that I remember ATSIC did this marvellous report into how it was representing women in its work, um, whether ATSIC successfully represented the needs of women. And, and they, that was commissioned by ATSIC um, by the Australian National Audit Office. So, so you know, there's a, there's a little bit in the kind of discussions about what a voice looked like that it would be something like a statutory commission, like ATSIC was, but the difference between ATSIC and this voice would be that the representatives are drawn from cultural authority rather than the ballot box. Yeah. One of the interesting things, and I had this discussion with Maura Mundine uh, uh, quite a while back. In fact, before I did a podcast with him, I had this discussion with him face to face. And we threw around concepts of how you might build something like this. And one of the issues that cropped up was, do you put, do you create an authority that has researchers and experts employed with Indigenous uh, leadership up top and at a board, on a board level, um, that then takes ownership of almost in its entirety of something like the closing the gap reports that, that, that are so critical to measuring where things are at, or at least at the present time, they're the way some people measure where things are at. Um, so you would certainly have some kind of, Secretary worked with the voice that would draw upon that expertise for sure. Um, if that's what you're, but why, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you establish a, 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 the? Um, why wouldn't it be appropriate, for example, to establish a and this a structure where you have researchers and others in a statutory body? doing that work and taking that work over? Well, I mean, you could, you could, do, you could do that. Um, um, I, I, I'm not sure what the purpose of that is. Is it an independent institute or is it just a bureaucracy? Oh, it'd be, it, it, if you were to do that as an independent type structure where it, it, yeah, the voice actually takes ownership of research, developing white papers, um, 
looking at uh, ways in which to fill gaps in in Indigenous history where you know, history is is incomplete and in records, that sort of thing. I mean, it, so, a deep, there's, yeah. a deeper, there's a deeper issue of what a work program is for uh, for the voice and whether there's a role for an entire unit to be established that reports directly to Parliament by committees and all that sort of stuff and and provides the the intellectual property that drives policy development. So, I mean, you've got a lot of that work now. It's just nobody listens to it at a Commonwealth level, right, through the bureaucracy. Um, and that 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 work happened quite easily during the ATIC period, right? ATIC would draw upon particular Australian institutes and units and, and barristers and experts and all sorts of people to provide it with the best, you know, expertise there was in the country on many issues. Um, so you could you could do that. You could create a unit. You could create an institute. I mean, I think part of the design of the Uluru Voice was that the Voice would set up a Makarata Institute, that the Macro sorry Makarata Commission and the work of the Makarata Commission is to supervise agreement making and truth telling, and um, and so a lot of that commission would be seized with that work, but the but I, but the, pro, the the work of the kind of complex policy issues. I mean, if that's what Mob wanted, they could easily do that unit. I suppose you've got to be you just got to be careful of um, um, of how that's set up and who does the work because you want the best of the best. Yeah. Um, and. Um, you know, in Aboriginal affairs, you can create little kind of cabals of elite opinion on things that aren't necessarily connected to community. So I think, um, I think, yeah, how how that looks in terms of whether it's like with ATSIC, um, the commission has you know experts working within it um, and drawing on experts outside of that as well. Um, or, or whether, as you say, it might be some other kind of unit um, that's is established to do that work. I mean, I think you've got to think about where all that comes from now and where it came from before in the ATSIC era to yeah. understand what that unit might look like. Um, yeah. Currently with the Commonwealth, most of it's farmed out to places like EY, um, PwC, you know, and the quality isn't high. It's just not because they're not experts. Um, but places like ANU, where you have CAPER, for example, the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research, you know, they did, they did a lot of work for ATSIC and that was, you know, really high quality work. Now, it, it, but there seems to me to be, there are several issues that, we grapple with here, one of which is getting the Indigenous voice to Parliament happening and getting people heard. And the second thing, correct me if you think I'm wrong, is giving the Indigenous population the ownership of certain things and the ownership of outcome. Yeah. Um, because it, it, having the conversation is fine, but how do you get people 
into a space where they get ownership of outcome and have that level of fulfilment as well? So the key to, to the key to that is 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 in its design, but it's also with the bureaucracy and government. It's it, it was the number one recommendation. It was the second recommendation, not like literally second, but the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. You know, it's two core recommendations. Where one, you know, while Aboriginal people come into contact with the justice system, we need to do X, Y, Z to to prevent them from dying. But the second component was self-determination. We need to grant people a degree of self-determination. And that means bureaucrats exiting the space and giving people and trusting people to be able to, to run things on their own autonomously without that kind of intense, oppressive bureaucratic oversight which I think is what you're alluding to, is how do you get people to create things yeah. and own things? And um, I think everybody wants to get there, but we can't get them to take their hands off our... To, we can't get them to relax their control over our lives. Um, and so there's a big kind of political imperative there, right? Um, there's a lot of talk about self-determination and autonomy at a Commonwealth level, and there's nothing resembling it. Well, the uh, I mean, Warren Mundine once said to me uh, in a conversation, in a in fact, a podcast we did last year, post the George Floyd killing in the US, and we spoke about the Aboriginal Deaths in Custody uh, Royal Commission. We spoke about a whole raft of reports that that you you and Warren will have seen come out. And one of the one of the things Warren said to me was, "There's a lot of people who are sincere, but outcomes aren't being delivered." Yeah, well, outcomes aren't being delivered by the bureaucracy. I mean, yeah. you, you can hold our mob don't have the control that they need, you know, they, they, they can't, yeah, well, I mean, the point is correct. Until you give people control over that, um, then, then you know, no one is responsible. Everyone's responsible and no one's responsible. Um, and I think... I think, I mean, there's always that risk then, of course, with ATSIC, once you set up a body like that, they were just able to blame ATSIC for everything, even though it wasn't ATSIC's fault all the time. Um, but, but the point that you're making is, yes, in, in moving towards the shape and design of the voice, a lot of attention needs to be paid to this point. Um, the model that Wyatt has put to the Australian people in the interim report doesn't provide you with that, doesn't provide you with the space to do things on your own without bureaucratic control. So it's in the opposite direction of what Uluru wanted. But but the point you're making is a good one and the point Warren makes as many black leaders make, um, you need to give people the space to make to do the to do good work and make mistakes as well and do good work and be able to own that from beginning to end. Even if you get to a point where a voice is established uh, in legislation, um, you've also got to give it a long period. You've got to give it, you know, at least a decade, in, in my view, uh, to be able to do what it needs to do without obstruction. Is that fair? So the first point I'd say on that is if they legislate the voice without enshrining it, there will be no enshrinement. So if they go ahead this year and legislate the voice, Uluru is dead. 
um, then they will be legislating the status quo. So I'm not confident at all that this voice will make a difference to anybody's life. Okay. Um, so the, one of the problems with the current design is the poor process leading to its establishment. Um, if you don't get legitimacy and buy-in from the Aboriginal people through a proper process, like there was with Uluru, then it's very hard for these institutions to have legitimacy. And that's what Congress failed. They didn't consult community well enough. And by the time we did the Uluru dialogues, there wasn't a, you know, there was a lot of dialogues that didn't even know the Congress existed. Um, but so with, so there's this problem that's being propagated by leaders like Tom Calmer and Marcy Langdon that, um, you know, you need to try before you buy, meaning Aboriginal people have to audition um, and run this voice for 10 years and make sure that it runs perfectly before we move to constitutional enshrinement. But the, but the flaw in that argument is this, if the voice is effective and it holds government to account, there's absolutely no way that they're going to enshrine that voice in a constitution. And then if the, if the voice isn't functioning and has real problems, then absolutely no one you know, if it's toothless, no one is going to want to enshrine that in the constitution. Um, so, um, so in terms of, I mean, your, your point is a good one about, um, so if I just think about enshrinement, we enshrine it, then we set up some sort of voice, then depending on what it looks like, um, yeah, it will take some time to, to show real benefit, but maybe not, maybe not depending on the kinds of powers, the kind of structure it is. Will it take that long to show significant changes in the community? It just depends on how it's designed. Um, I think one of the things I think we, about this whole debate is, you know, even this morning, Langton's in the newspaper saying, you know, you've got to trial it first so that the nervous Nellies, she says in the Liberal Party, um, are happy for it to be enshrined. But, you know, what 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 Ken Wyatt's interim report looks like, what Gillian Lisa and Patrick Dodson's Joint Select Committee looks like, what the dialogue said, none of the design is much different um, really at the end of the day to what ATSIC was or any of the other models we've had before, meaning... You know, you're not going to get Homer Simpson's car in this. We we know what it might look like. So this idea <laughs> that some somehow you've got to trial something that really we we know how it's going to play out. We know we but we know we need to tinker with particular things. So the model kind of all looks the same. What's different though is if it's constitutionally enshrined, it has a lot more power than a piece of legislation. If it's constitutionally enshrined as well, it's a lot harder to remove a statutory board that is linked to a constitutional Precisely. recognition. So it, it, the constitution would then um, form a foundation and then you build, build, build on that foundation, whereas um, the concern you've expressed um, and others I think have expressed as well is that without recognition, you can create a statutory authority uh, within five or six or seven years if it's not working, you uh, you smother it, yeah. um, and that 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 I think it, it it's it's a concern that is entirely valid. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and you pointed to this earlier, and I wanted to expand a bit on it if I can. Yeah. 
Um, and that is the, the great diversity that we have in First Nations yeah. across the country. And one of the challenges would appear to be the way in which you build something that, that is essentially talking to people in Canberra that needs feedback almost octopus-like from all over the place. Um, To what extent do you think there's a role for um, state-based councils or committees that feed into the work of uh, a national voice so that state-based concerns or concerns that, you know, that... Array need to be raised by people um, uh, in Western Australia, for example, find their way to Canberra via a, via a set structure so that there's no way in which this stuff can be missed. So there's an important role. I mean, just much like ASIC, there's a very important role for state and territory-based. Um, when you say councils, I don't know whether you mean um, Indigenous-based ones or just in the, the the bureaucracy at that level, or or, or whether I you think mean... if, if if we uh, let me say something a bit more concrete than that, if as part of the voice you have a board of or a um, a board of people that have been appointed, however they're appointed, um, leave that aside, and then you have state based um, state based committees that might report into the voice that, that, that have Indigenous representatives on them so that there's a, a, capa- a way of capturing a range of opinions and views and feeding that stuff back into the central commentary position, if you will. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there is no barrier to that. I mean, it is a federation and um, I think that it was always contemplated that in some way um, states and territories could feed into the voice that way. And certainly the Wyatt model seeks to do that. Um, the, the motivation of the Wyatt model is more to align itself with the Commonwealth's position that it, it would like to revert to a pre-1967 position, right, where the states and territories have the primary responsibility of Aboriginal affairs. That is what the Commonwealth says. That's what Julian Lisa says. You know, as of a couple of months ago, he said, you know, we are not responsible for Aboriginal affairs. We are just the ATM. So this is, you know, Mike Dillon has written, the former kind of head of Prime Minister and Cabinet Indigenous Affairs, has written a marvellous analysis of this in one of the CAPER reports. Um, And and he does some of the best forensic analysis of the policy trends that are going on at a Commonwealth level that are influencing the voice. And one is the Commonwealth's walking back of 1967. So, so yeah, so in this Wyatt design, they, they, they are trying to elevate um, those state processes to feed into the voice, but they do, they do something else, right? They won't allow the national voice to talk to the state and territory voices. Um, they want to isolate that national voice. Um, and part, part of that is about this Commonwealth walking back on 67. Um, and part of it is that the Commonwealth has worked with a lot of state and territory governments since ATSIC to set up their own little, you know, hand-picked mechanisms in which they get blackfellas feeding their policy at a state level. Um, and, and they develop all these kinds of, you know, policies called 
place-based decision-making and local decision-making, and they're all bureaucratically constructed and bureaucratically controlled mechanisms for self-determination, except they're not self-determination. So two, two answers to that question. First of all, in terms of our contemplation of what the voice looks like, absolutely you would find ways to make sure that the state councils or entities or whatever they are, are able to, state governments included, are able to feed into the voice. In fact, no different to the way ATSIC operated as a statutory commission. Um, on the, um, the Wyatt kind of process, there's a kind of contemplation, you know, that the state and territories um, are almost at the same level elevated above that of a national voice because the Commonwealth says, you know, most Aboriginal business these days is a state and territory responsibility. It's not the Commonwealth. Um, and that's just simply not true. It is simply not true. And, and that argument from the Commonwealth and what they are doing in terms of Indigenous affairs, because they're doing it right across the board, this disavowal of Commonwealth responsibility, and we've only got the money, but we have no responsibility. Um, that, that's not scrutinised enough at all by media or any of the players in Indigenous affairs. And it's a pretty significant thing after a 1967 referendum where the majority, like it was the highest yes vote in the Australian, you know, the nation's history, um, that that they're stepping away from that but not actually having that conversation with the Australian people because I think the Australian people would be appalled. Um, so it go, it's logical, you know, that, it, you know, if the goal of this is that we want to address the kind of disadvantage that we know is a consequence of colonisation and dispossession and all of the disadvantage that has come with what our people have endured, um, you know, it makes sense that the best laws and policies occur with blackfellas at the table, but also with states and territories feeding into that process as well. So, so yes, you need, you need to have that feeding in. Um, but, but I suppose a lot of the discussion right now is um, wrapped up in this, this desire of the Commonwealth to walk away from Aboriginal affairs. You said something there that's triggered another question in the back of my mind, and that is the role of, of media in scrutinising uh, government activity in, in Indigenous affairs. Um, what can people in the media do better? Well, um... I'm not sure we have the best media when it comes to scrutiny of Indigenous affairs. I think it's a kind of that it's a kind of interest that's triggered when there's Reconciliation Week, National Reconciliation Week, Black Lives Matter. But but you know the kind of forensic investigative journalism that someone like Michael Gordon at the Age used to do. We don't we don't really have that anymore. Um, and so there is a lot of work um, um, to be done in, in that space. And I don't necessarily mean just, you know, appointing Aboriginal um, people to be journalists in this space. You need, you know, industry-trained investigative journalists who, who are able to really um, scrutinise government conduct because in the absence of that, I mean, you know, the media is meant to be one of those accountability mechanisms. 
um, that help scrutinise government behaviour. Um, but we had this weird phenomenon post Uluru where people just, journalists just kind of wrote it off immediately because that's what they're used to. Um, or is it because the, um, the the government of the day basically said it was a third chamber, don't want to listen to it, whatever have you? There was a lot of that beforehand, but but even with the third chamber reporting, you know, it was just a matter of fact, right? Third chamber, this is dead, moving on. You know, there was no really serious scrutiny of the lack of um, coherency in the Turnbull argument. There was no coherency to that. Um, there's just this, and you see it when you're kind of registered with Icentia and you can see how media goes out across the networks, across the nation, just this yeah. repeating of government press releases. And so, and messaging. So, um, you know, we literally get every government press release and you can see them just being run completely unscrutinised. And during the entire 12 weeks, I think it ended up being 15 weeks of the Wyatt's process on the interim voice, um, ABC News, ABC Radio, all of the media outlets were just running Tom Calmer, Marcy Langton and government talking points, completely unscrutinised in terms of the Uluru voice. I mean, you wouldn't know that there's a serious kind of debate going on about the fact that you can't constitutionalise this voice once it's legislated. And, and just the failure to scrutinise that means people are comforted in the fact that it's going to be legislated, not knowing that actually that's it, that's the end of Uluru once that happens. Um, there's no scrutiny of the, the pretty poor process um, that's led to the design. There's no questions asked. There's no pushback. It's just a free reign for government. And that's that's the problem at the moment, I think, with mainstream media is um, there's just not that accountability mechanism that is in place when it comes to climate change, when it comes in to play for COVID and all these other issues. It's not in that space when it comes to Aboriginal public policy. But, Megan, is that also because people, when we started talking in this podcast, I spoke to you about regulatory impact statements and other things. I understand the way in which regulation works. Um, is that because people may not necessarily understand the full scope, the full possibilities of how government can create things and how things work? Or is there something more fundamental uh, than that? Give me a little bit of it. Look, there's one journalist with one of the main newspapers who continually has, since day one after Uluru, pushed for no referendum and legislation. And the other day, like, this this kid has an agenda, you know. He's a, he's a journalist, but you can tell there's an agenda. And when you get to the bottom of it, you know, he his response is, well, legislation is better than nothing. And I think that that plays out in... The reporting of this, I think there is this position that you know it's it's um, too difficult. Um, people don't really understand Aboriginal affairs, and they think anything is better than nothing. You know, they really do believe that. Um, but on this voice, the voice is just the status quo. Anything is not better than nothing. It's actually further from the truth. Um, but that's the kind of lazy cognitions that are going on, and that influences reporting. Um, yeah, I, I don't, you know, 
that doesn't answer your question, but um, yeah, well, but, but it, it does to, to some degree because it could there's clearly uh, people who've um, who who gets to brief people first, uh, yep. Yep. possibly wins the battle. Um, but and I'm I'm conscious of time, uh, Megan. So I do want to ask you um, one final question on on, on this uh, particular process of getting a voice up and running and all that sort of stuff. Now, once a voice it, it is established, however we get one it would seem to me to be an appropriate opportunity to have discussions at that point, sensible discussions at that point about the, the changing of the flag, the moving of Australia Day to Australia Day, all that sort of stuff. Once you got that structure in place, it seems to me to be a, a way to have that discussion um, in, a, in a structured way and to put that put that feedback through uh, the, the structure of the voice. Um, is that something that you see being of use? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's we, we feel like there's a lot of agendas, including the Republic, that can't come until we have started this journey. And the reality in this country is post-1788, there's been no official recognition of the dispossession and that is what we're trying to get to with the Uluru Statement. Um, because reconciliation was severely criticised in the dialogues, um, not because people don't believe in it, but people say it's the wrong word, right? Reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relations after a kind of dispute. You know, you were friends first. And the Supreme Court of, of Canada uses it because they, they were treaties, right? They're talking about a relationship where something was signed and, um, and you're trying to get to a point where you're reconciling your differences. The Uluru Statement contemplates that actually we've never met. And that's what the hand of friendship is of the Uluru Statement. It's a, it's a roadmap to peace. It is saying to Australians... You know, it was deliberately issued to the Australian people as an invitation to walk with us in a journey of the Australian people together, like 1967. Mm -hmm. And um, it was deliberately not handed over to the Prime Minister, Turnbull or Shorten or any of the premiers, because we decided that, like, you know, they, 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 they do these things um, in a ritualistic manner, meaning they'll accept the painting, do the photo op, then nothing will ever be implemented. And so it was a really a lot of thought went into how do we get this reform off the ground given politicians are so afraid of the Australian people and politicians are so inert when it comes to proper law reform in this process, in this area. Well, we'll talk to the Australian people. This is unfinished business. It has never been addressed by the Australian state. It was addressed in a, in a kind of way by the High Court in the Common Law and Mabo, but we still have not had that, that coming together you know, of, of two parties. And that's what Uluru purported to do or purports to do. So a lot of things cascade off that first step of the Uluru Statement, things like discussion on the flag, things like discussion on the anthem, things like discussion on what to do about Australia Day, things like the Republic. There's a lot that ca can cascade off a marvellous nation-building moment like, you know, a yes vote in, in a referendum and um, that vision it's you know that's the vision 
of the Uluru Statement um, and it's just really difficult for to be able to convey that to politicians who are elected every three years and their only eyes on that ballot box and therefore their only eyes on the, the middle Australia and they can't see that this is a good thing for the nation. So short-termism in your view is something that smothers proper vibrant debate on uh, on something like The Voice? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, you know, I, I know that Labor had talked about having a constitutional commission if they were elected because there's some problems with our democracy, right? There's problems with Section 44 and citizenship. There's problems, you know, there's a republic. There's our voice. Um, but there's also the problem of, of short electoral cycles, right? The four-year term has been tried before at, at referendum, but it, it is it is becoming really problematic to good policy. And one of the downsides of three years as opposed to four years um, is, is this short-termism, and we are absolutely victims of it. No one will, will take, you know, we're in an era of professional politicians. So, you know, it would be great to have politicians who go, right, you know, I'm a lawyer or a doctor or a garbo and I'm gonna I'm gonna get elected for three years and I'm gonna go hard on some big issues because I know that if I get voted out I can go back to my day job. You don't have that anymore because they're all professional politicians. Um, but if if we did then we might have some visionaries who were prepared to take a punt on this. And and look, yesterday's news or Sunday's news, Saturday's news would tell us Andrew Bragg, Josh Frydenberg, you know, Frydenberg's budget in 2019 put aside $7 million for the co-design and $160 million for a referendum on a voice. You know, we do have support both on the Labor side and the Liberal and National Party side. We're just not there yet. Um, but short-termism, absolutely. They don't see us as vote winners, even if um, it will save the country money in, in the future. It will bring a lot more um, uh, in terms of peace and security. It will bring a lot more... It'll take a lot of angst out of things at the moment where people can't see an end in sight to incarceration and child protection, which is why your comment about the state councils is so important because, of course, they're state responsibilities. Um, people can't see the future because, um, because, yeah, we're just stuck in this cycle, you know. The first year they're gloating, the second year, um, you know, they start to think about the third year and then the third year they're just handing out cash, splashing the cash to <laughs> marginal seats and safe seats to try and shore up the vote. And that's where we, we suffer for it and good policy suffers for it. Well, Megan, then that's, uh, that's probably a good spot to, to conclude our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your perspective on, on the voice, the Uluru statement and where we need to head in the next little while. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. No, no, thank, thank you so much. Hope we can talk again.